brings back memories of uh, when my daughter was in choir and singing. Some of these oldies are goodies, though. Some of these oldies are goodies. Many of them are. I have to apologize. I have my water here, and I have my cough drops. <laughs> you can put it together from there, right? We're, uh, Scott mentioned that we're coming off of our worship series of broken glass and brilliant light. Uh, he shared messages of all of these stained glasses around us from uh, the calling of Isaiah, the incarnation, the prodigal son, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the Great Commission. He shared about that Great Commission last week and challenged us to go, to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you know, it'd be so easy to stop there, but there's another sentence. Many of our Christian siblings do stop there. But the message continues. Teach them to obey all I've commanded you. So when we finished the plan series last week, and I knew that I had this buffer in between now and Lent, I was wondering, you know, what if there was another window? What if we could design another window? What might that look like? I know for you mathematicians or engineers, some of you are saying, but where would we put it? <laughs> but go with me, okay? So today I'd like for us to consider what that next window might look like and what light would shine through it, what colors, what message. What would make this currently invisible window uniquely one of this community that is Arapahoe? So let's dig into that a bit. And to do that, I want to share a story from Luke chapter 4. I'm not sorry to admit that this is one of my favorite stories and, and um, passages from the Bible. It's at Luke 4, starting with verse 14. Just prior to this, Jesus had been baptized and went away into the wilderness, and he had faced three temptations. You may have heard that story, turn the stone to bread, worship other gods, and test God. And he was... Uh, good to uh, affirm his baptismal identity and affirmed his commitment to ministry by denying each of those. After that, he turns and, and we hear this from Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were upon him. The word of God in scripture, the word of God among us, the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Filled with the power of the Spirit and a report about him spread throughout the surrounding country. 
Jesus is coming off of this wilderness journey and is filled with the power of the Spirit, going back to Galilee. He is ready. Maybe sometime in your life, you've had that euphoric feeling, that energy, that joy, that purpose and mission. You might not have considered filled with the power of the Spirit as defining what that feeling was, but in many cases, it probably does fit. It just might not be the first thing that goes into our minds. When we put that feeling into a community setting, though, you might have heard this word called revival. Being raised in Virginia, I've participated in uh, revivals in my younger days, big tents, traveling partners, yes, altar calls, and pancakes. You know you want some. <laughs> Making disciples, revivals. That's what Jesus said, right? And going on in the world today, in Kentucky, at a university, Asbury University, uh, it's a little Methodist school in Kentucky, it's going into its 11th day today. Others have sprouted around the country, this revival. Here's what happened. At Asbury University, every Wednesday there is chapel. The students are required to have certain number of chapel visits at Asbury, and so they just grow accustomed to it as, uh, as a place to be at a certain hour. When last Wednesday, or the Wednesday before, I guess, came around, it was a little different. After the benediction, the gospel choir began its final chorus, and then something began to happen that really kind of defies description. The students didn't leave. They were struck by what seems to be a quiet and powerful sense of transcendence, someone said. And by Thursday evening, they were still at it. There was standing room only, and other universities had gone to this place to help with that. University of Kentucky, University of Cumberland, Purdue, Indiana Wesleyan, Ohio Christian, and more. And the worship continued through the weekend. And some are calling it a revival. And I know that in recent years, that term has become associated with political activism and Christian nationalism. But Tom McCall, who is the dean of uh, Asbury Seminary there, says this. Truth be told, it's nothing like that. There's no pressure or hype. There's no manipulation. There's no high-pitched emotional fervor. It's so far been mostly calm and serene. The mix of hope and joy and peace is indescribably strong and indeed almost palpable, a vivid and incredibly powerful sense of shalom. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is undeniably powerful, but also so gentle. There is something going on at Asbury, and it is a revival. And it's easy for those of us who don't identify, I put myself in this as a Christian nationalist, to completely discount it and assume what's happening is just more of the same. More fundamentalism, more manipulation, more of the strict dogmatic authoritarianism, more of the hate. But I want to caution us not to make those assumptions. It's dangerous to assume that we can control the spirit. In the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus as he talks to Nicodemus, the spirit, the wind blows where it chooses. And you can hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. 
Perhaps then it's not what's happening in a chapel in Asbury that is the critical point. It's important, yes, and it's the work of the Spirit. In our Wesleyan tradition, we share in a practice called means of grace. And Wesley was clear that there's both individual and communal means of grace. Both are important in our faith journey. But how the Spirit moves is not the emphasis. The wind does blow where it chooses in individuals and community, but more important is our response to the Spirit's movement. So let's look at what Jesus says about that response, shall we? The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and I don't know if that was because it was the next scroll in the list, or somebody dropped it on the floor, or if he planned it. I don't know. What I know is this, the reading that he shares is a powerful one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let me give you a little context. These passages are from Isaiah, Isaiah here from chapters 58 and chapter 61. Some of them almost word for word, but they're a compilation and mixed. And in this prophecy, God shares through Isaiah, we hear messages about liberation and freedom. Which is the fast that I choose, Isaiah says, on behalf of God. And it's this one, liberation and freedom. And there's context for that as well. This year of the Lord's favor refers to what's known as the year of jubilee. It's from the book of Leviticus that I know that you read all day yesterday. You might have noticed in chapter 5, chapter 25. Chapter starts out talking about the Sabbath year, that the land is to be cultivated for six years, and on the seventh year it rests. You are still able to eat from the land, but you are not to cultivate it. There's a whole story in there about Sabbath and rest and blessing, and we'll have that someday. What I want to bring to your attention is a little later in the chapter, the year of Jubilee. So Jubilee is a theoretical time when liberty is proclaimed to all the land and its inhabitants. It happens every 50 years. There's not proof that this ever occurred in history, so I know that those of you are saying, well, that didn't really happen, so we don't have to worry about it. <clears throat> That's why I use the term theoretical. But I believe that it is an inspiration and something that we should strive toward. It's a time of reset, not just for the land, but for the people. When slaves are freed, when debts are forgiven, everything gets a reset. It's a year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. There's a class that's meeting on Tuesday nights at 6.30 here at Arapahoe, and we're working through the Bible in a year. You're welcome to join us anytime we meet in room one. <clears throat> when we got to this particular passage, because we did read Leviticus, <clears throat> there was a lot of, well, what about, or how does it work if, really all the debts? And, well, what if the person who originally owned the land doesn't live anymore? Do you give it to their brother or their sister or their son or their daughter? How does all that work? We get so wrapped up in details, don't we? I know I do. But when we look at the intent here, Jesus and Isaiah are referencing a very specific vision of God's creation, one of unity, free of oppression, free of poverty, free of hate and division, 
Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor has everything to do with liberation and freedom. And Jesus is sharing that this time has come. He is here to proclaim it. Now is the time to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So at this time of jubilee has come, what is it that Jesus is calling us to do? And I'll say to you that much of that answer lies in the first line, to preach good news to the poor. What are we preaching? What are we proclaiming? What message are we sending? There's one school of thought, that is that preaching good news is to the poor in spirit, that recovery of sight to the blind are those who have turned their back on God, and we just need to bring everyone back to it. And I think that's, well, it tells us that our role as disciple echoes the evangelical call of more conversions, more salvations, more yay, God! And I don't think that's necessarily all wrong, but I'm not buying all of it because it overlooks a critical connection to Jubilee. It's like the Great Commission. There's another verse there, right? There's another verse to teach us, which Jesus shares um, with us. If we are viewing only as the poor in spirit, at the end of the day, there are still people living in poverty. There are still those who are oppressed. There are still those who are chained to injustices that we just can't seem to overcome. And people can't be free if there are still systems of oppression that are not just keeping them down, but often pushing them down. And that's not jubilee. So when we look at the structure of these passages, I pull out just a couple of things. The first is proclamation. The proclamation that we are proclaiming good news to the poor. And then there are two, two lines that talk about advocating for justice releasing the captives and helping the oppressed go free. And right in the middle of that is all of this surrounding compassion. Compassion to recover sight to the blind. Proclamation, justice, compassion, justice. And finally, a final proclamation that the year of the Lord's favor is here. It's not just about the poor in spirit. It's about the literal poor relieving their debts, letting them go free. It's not just about sacrifice and salvation. It's about jubilee and liberation and freedom for the oppressed. And that theology, I think you know, has become very core to this church. When you head out of the sanctuary today, you may see that we have these four banners that refer to the four pillars of Arapaho's ministry cultivate deep relationships, develop an intentional faith, and two others that speak specifically to this message today, engage in ministry with the poor and advocate for justice. So I ask you, if we were to design that other window, that next stained glass, there's no way that it wouldn't carry some form of light that brightly shine towards ministry with the poor and advocating for justice. Because that's the core of who this community is. Intentional faith and justice. Relationship and ministry with. I see and I know the proclamation from Arapaho. It's standing up when things aren't 
as they should be. It's pointing out that we're preaching much more than just the poor in spirit. It's taking the candlelight from these candles and carrying the message of the stained glass to the world. When we advocate for justice, we're proclaiming good news for the poor, that they're not alone, and that they are as much a part of the gospel story as anyone. Last week I had lunch or coffee with Abby Kaufman. If you don't know who Abby Kaufman is, she's the recently, in the last year, appointed CEO or hired CEO of Network of Community Ministries. And she did give me permission to share this today. For those who aren't aware, Network is a social services organization that proclaims this mission from their website, to care, to coach and empower our neighbors in need as they seek an improved quality of life. Arapahoe was one of the founding stakeholders in Network back in 1985, and that's something that I just feel is core to us. Network is based in Richardson, but it provides services to any person or families living in the Richardson Independent School District geographic boundaries. That's 14 zip codes. So there's Dallas and Richardson neighbors who benefit from these services, but the organization resides in Richardson where they have a new facility and it provides grocery shopping for the neighbors. It provides a clothes closet. It provides uh, sustainable and, and financial uh, empowerment and, and help with that. <clears throat> it helps our neighbors to become more stable economically, mentally, and whole. So they can't just live, but they thrive. We've listened and watched and participated as the vision of Network has been implemented over these years. True ministry with the poor, expanding and moving to a new location, expanding to help provide those more necessary services. And I've heard the dream to include health care for our neighbors in the mix. That's actually a functioning clinic that's on site with them right now. They put it into a pilot program for Richardson Independent School District staff. And it's been successful. But of course, we know that it's not just RISD staff that needs these critical health services. It's all of our neighbors, and some of them are hurting. There's many more people who are in need of these services. So enter the opportunity to form a new partnership with Jewish Family Services to build out 3,500 square feet of space in the existing building and dedicate those to services related to physical and mental health. Imagine it, preventative health care, mental health services, counseling, and attention to health programs for our neighbors. What a blessing and a partnership. And Abby and the staff, they don't make decisions lightly. Her experience tells her that support from all over the stakeholders is critical to success. So the work started. And in no particular order, the team at Network gained support from their neighbors, from the board of directors, from key donors, from key partners who are literally named stakeholders like Arapahoe. RISD supports it. Volunteers support it. The very last stakeholder to weigh in was the City Council of Richardson. Now mind you, there wasn't a legal requirement here. It's best practices, asking the blessing and the uh, 
well, the blessing from all stakeholders. It's a critical step in sharing the good news that all stakeholders support this partnership and the services. For two hours, Abby and the chair of the board presented the plan and the vast amount of support that had been received for this. The partnership with JFS. And they answered questions that came flying at them, some of them pretty random. Now I know this team at Network, and I know the plans were based on needs of the neighbors. 57% of the 240,000 students living in RASD qualify as economically disadvantaged. There is a need, making choices every day, whether to pay rent or buy food. I know that this plan was not just one based on passion and empathy, but on need and professionalism and mission. I know they were proclaiming liberation and the year of the Lord's favor. There's no way this message could be missed. This clinic would fill an incredible hole in the lives of our neighbors, and it was ready to implement. So explain to me, please, how the City Council of Richardson voted unanimously to not support the clinic. Now, I wasn't in the room. And yes, Network supports all of RISD, which includes both Richardson and Dallas. But when I hear insinuations of we don't want those people in Richardson or something like that, as at least partial denial or partial basis for denying the blessing as a final stakeholder in this plan, well, I personally have news for the city. Those people are already here. And there's a lot of us who will stand side by side with them advocating for their needs and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Is this not the fast we choose to proclaim, to have compassion, to seek justice? This is intentional faith, friends, and I'm grateful for the people at Arapahoe who are willing to seek it. Let's have that revival and let's celebrate it. Let's proclaim it. To take these stained glass candles, these candles, alight with flame and light the world. You don't have to design another window, Arapahoe. You're living it, lighting the world, and I am so grateful. Amen.